Hi everyone, I'm Emily. And I'm Vince. And this is The Lighthouse Lowdown. We have a very cool episode going on today where we're going to be interviewing Carl Lindquist and Fred Stonehouse, um, both having ties to Standard Rock Lighthouse um, that we covered in episode four, I think it was? I think it was four, yep. Okay. We just wanted to meet with them and cover a little bit about a restoration project that's going to be going on as soon as possible, so... Fundraising happening now, um, and Carl Lindquist is from the SWP and... Superior Watershed Partnership. And Land Conservancy, right. which I learned recently. <laughs> yeah, and Fred has written a ton of maritime history books, and he teaches classes and has this big... I mean, his whole life has revolved around stuff like that, so... Absolute legend. Yeah, he's a legend. They're both legends. Uh, so anyway, they're going to talk a little bit about the restoration. I was sick while they did this interview, so I missed out on making an appearance. But so you get Vince, to hear some more of me. Yeah, What's up? Vince did a pretty good job of doing that. So <laughs> <laughs> It was a, a last-minute effort, and I think it went well. Yeah, yeah, it worked out. It was good. We got it, it's really it's very cool uh, listening to them talk. They have really good things to say. So, just about the restoration, since we didn't really get deep into the phases of the project or anything, mm-hmm. I'll just cover them really quick. So, phase one is initial stabilization and rehabilitation of Standard Rock. And if you haven't listened to episode four, go listen to it. Um, Fred it's goes into the history a little bit, but we go a little in depth in that episode. So, I'd go ahead and listen to that first. But um, first phase of restoration is just uh, concrete work, treatments to stabilize the lighthouse so Mm. that there's not further deterioration or anything like that. And um, to make determinations for appropriate treatments in later phases. There's two more phases that come after this. And so initially, this first phase has a budget or I guess we need to raise $984,000. So and this according to their proposal it, it's going to take like 10 years to complete this first phase so if we remember the location of this lighthouse it's very secluded far out and depends on weather so i'm sure they're anticipating that with their 10-year span yeah yeah, yeah. episode four is one of our more popular ones it's very yeah. interesting very cool uh and for the fundraising which is discussed in the episode uh, i was able today to confirm it is live so yeah and there may be a GoFundMe. We'll have to check. You can also go onto their website, which I'll link in the show notes, where you can donate. And phase two is rehabilitation. Uh, this phase includes additional repairs and required rehabilitation treatments and anything else that wasn't undertaken in phase one. And they anticipate like five years for this one. And the budget is one about $1.2 million. So this is a big one. The big, big one. <laughs> the big budget. Yeah. And then phase three is long-term rehabilitation, and that includes uh, recommended long-term rehabilitation treatment treatments that take into account the appearance and configuration of features of the lighthouse. So, big plans. Yeah, and this one's one point five million dollars and another five years. So that's what they have in store for Standard Rock. If you, I'm also going to link the proposal also in my show notes so that you guys can read it. It's like four hundred pages long, but if you just like go to this the part where they talk about what the changes are going to be they talk a lot about the concrete and like uh, all the paint out there not all but a majority of the paint out there has lead in it so they have mm-hmm. to take care of that like hazarded hazardous waste and stuff so it's interesting it'll be a big project to undertake so we're counting on everyone to band together and make it happen do some donating yeah so we hope you enjoy this interview that we're going to go ahead and Play for you guys right now. Let's get into it. Still getting tuned in? Yeah, I think we're on now. Did it work? Can you yeah, hear me? I, I can hear you, Fred. This is Carl. Okay. Then I guess I'm on. Hey, Fred. <laughs> hey, Vincent. Good to see you. Good to see you. Well, thank you for guys for coming on. I really appreciate it. Um, <clears throat> thank you for your time. I was mentioning to Carl, we don't have a, a standard time that we shoot for to go over or under so if something comes up or if we get bored or we run through all the things we want to talk about there's no worries there so there's no target for me 
Um, I was telling Carl as well, Emily's sick today. She fell ill, but I was hoping to be on this call too. So if it's up with, with you, we'll just continue with it if that's all right. Sure. I've, I've seen you, you guys have been interviewed, so hoping not to throw the whole can at you. But I'd really love to hear mostly about both of your backgrounds real brief uh, because our podcast, most of our listeners we're finding, um, so we start, we're in Kansas City. We started with our family and friends and it kind of grew from there as any podcast probably does. But most of them are new to lighthouses and really nautical history and culture and interest. It's kind of a, it's kind of a growth of, of new founders to the criteria, which I think also fits us. Uh, Emily and I are both interested in lighthouses. We've done a little traveling now. Uh, we got to go out to the Outer Banks just a couple months ago um, to see some lighthouses and to get kind of our toes in the water. But um, from from a from a new perspective, would you gentlemen each uh, introduce yourself, please? You first, Fred. Yeah, my name is Fred Stonehouse. Uh, live in Marquette, Michigan. I do a lot of writing about maritime history on the Great Lakes, particularly also really including the Eastern Seaboard, too. I've uh, been lucky enough to have about 30 books or so published on maritime history. And, uh, you know, the involvement I had with Standards Rock Light is because of the history of the light and the history of it as it fades into maritime history on the Great Lakes, particularly. And uh, I'm Carl Lindquist with the Superior Watershed Partnership. And uh, we started as primarily a Great Lakes organization focused on water quality and environmental work but as things have grown over the years uh, we also got involved uh, as a land conservancy and involved with climate work and uh, standard rock has proven to be a really valuable site for climate research for both uh, u.s and canadian agencies so we own it and coordinate with them. And that's kind of our role in uh, Standard Rock. And uh, Fred has the history of, of everything. <laughs> so. You guys are quite a couple to have on here. We were introduced, I know, through a listener of the, the podcast, and they recommended both of you. And it's a, it's a real pleasure for me. I appreciate your time coming on here. Um, Fred, you mentioned you've published over 30 books. Is that correct? Are there any that are unpublished that are secret treasures of yours? Well, I mean, there's always uh, always have one in the hopper here that you're working on, and uh, we'll see yeah. when I can bring that one forward. Uh, the uh, the one that just came out is called Gone, the Greatest Shipwreck Mystery on the Great Lakes, and that involves the loss of two French naval minesweepers in Lake Superior right at the end of World War One. Uh, complete with uh, 78 French sailors. And to this date, neither vessel nor has a single set of human remains been discovered. So it has uh, really been an interesting journey to try and solve that mystery. Uh, I did not, by the way, I just uh, simply got to that point and we'll see what happens with addition two. Uh, what is, if you don't mind, so for, for a lot of younger folks, our research is entirely internet-based. And I know that I don't know if that's good or bad, but it seems to be the easy button. Is all of your 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 extensive life's work is that all based today on contacts that you've made over a career, uh, people that can connect you with information and reading, or is it how do you go about researching for each of your books? Well, as you know, uh, so much of life is networking. And over time, you develop extensive networks. I like to say I know where the bodies are buried. So when you get to the point of doing a book or doing deep research, taking that deep dive, you have a pretty good idea where to begin, where to start, which archive may be holding the information or set of archives, specifically how you think you can acquire that information, and then really start off from that point, uh, working, for example, on the, the French minesweepers because they were sovereign vessels of France, uh, you had to be able to uh, translate from the original Fran or French uh, records of you know, now over a century ago. Uh, that becomes a problem uh, or a challenge, really. And likewise, you have to open up a whole different set of uh, archival work that you've never done before. 
So it's it, in many ways, it's solving a mystery that has many threads and following those individual threads down until you can bring them together in a coherent whole. And uh, hopefully out of that then will become a publication. That's incredible. It's so exciting. I, I was looking through, I was doing research. Uh, my version of research is very light, <laughs> but I was Googling both of you and I was looking at uh, your websites and, and Fred, your website. I was reading down through the various books that are listed there. And I saw one on, um, I won't remember the name of it, but it was on recipes and lighthouses. It seemed kind of like a curveball. Yes, it was a lighthouse cookbook. And the idea of it was to find 100 lighthouses across the United States, which I I did, that were willing to contribute a recipe uh, that in some fashion was connected with the lighthouse or that particular geographic area. So I would include then a page of description on the lighthouse, a little bit of the background history, some photography, and then the recipe. And it, it was an interesting book to do. It was something I'd never done before, way out of my comfort zone. Uh, but on the other hand, it was uh, successful. That's awesome. Well, Emily yeah. and I are, uh, we moved in together here oh, a couple months ago. We've got a nice little house we rented and uh, it's nautical themed. I'm building a lighthouse right now for the living room. Um, and we might have to add that to our kitchen. So we'll, we'll keep you in mind for sure. <laughs> Carl, I wanted to talk to you. So the SWP, Superior Watershed Partnership and Land Conservancy, uh, again, from your web- website, I saw that you're the founder. Is that correct? Yep. So, and then I kept reading and I saw an extensive list of people working with you today. Um, what year did you found the conservancy and and what has changed over time as you brought on those additional help well we uh formed as a nonprofit in 1999 and uh, you know at, at first it was just me and, and the board but uh currently we have uh, 18 year-round employees in two offices but we had 40 seasonals, what we call our Great Lakes Climate Corps this year. So, yeah, we've, we've grown a bit. Um, we're still doing a lot of, uh, you know, environmental work, water quality work. But one area, well, two areas where we're, we're doing more. One, as I mentioned, is climate change. But two, the second one is um, just uh, assisting people in general. We uh, administer uh, a state uh, grant for low-income housing, for paying heating bills, weatherizing low-income housing, and, and sometimes uh, some small solar demonstrations. So we're also, we're not just helping uh, the environment these days, we're also helping people directly. So it's been pretty re- rewarding. Yeah, it sounds really interesting. Do you so that keeps you busy full time. It sounds like it's been yeah, been keeping you busy full time. Keeps about twenty of us busy full time. Yeah. Where do you find most of your seasonal help? Are they uh, folks that contact you? Or are you recruiting, or is it they're, all local folk? Yeah, they're mostly uh, college age or you know early twenties. They're either in school or recently graduated, and a lot of them you know are in the environmental field and. Uh, a lot of them go on to get careers in the field. So this is their first uh, kind of hands-on work. And we work with local, state, federal, and tribal partners. So we got projects all over the Upper Peninsula. So it's a great opportunity for them to, to get out there and be part of the solution, I guess. That's incredible. Yeah. Well, thank you for your work. Um, yeah. I was on the website, I think it was yesterday and then today, and, and kind of the, the source of our call here today, uh, Emily and I did an episode on Standard Rock Lighthouse, and it was a, a fun, brief introduction on the history from our reading. Nothing like you two could prepare for us, but, but uh, from there, we kind of got an interest, and um, I think in our original episode, we mentioned there's an upcoming restoration, so I was hoping to talk to you. You said the, the SWP are owners of Standard Rock today. Is that true? Yes, uh, I believe it was since 2016. The federal government con- continues to have a program where they get rid of uh, old lighthouses that are, you know, um, 
Well, Fred, correct me here. They're still used for navigation, but the, the government doesn't want the cost of maintaining the light. Is that accurate? I, I think that's accurate. The government takes the cost of maintaining the actual beacon, uh, and they'll usually do that with some, always invariably with some sort of an automated system. So the light as a navigation aid is still in place, but the rest of the facility then is off their ownership. So in effect, you own it, but they have the provision of keeping the light. Right. And it, as you probably know, Vince, it's the most remote lighthouse in North America. Yeah. So from where Fred and I are in Marquette, it's 40 miles straight out in the lake. Uh, so that presents a challenge as far as upkeep goes. And you're correct. We're just starting to announce a campaign to raise funding for renovation work uh, and historical restoration work, but it's a $2 million campaign. That's the estimate to do everything that that lighthouse needs. Um, but at the same time, it's it's been there a long time. What year was it completed, Fred? 83. 1883. And it, uh, knock on wood, I don't think it's going anywhere soon. It's, it's, but it still needs a lot of uh, TLC. Yeah, it seems like it's a, from the reading I've done and some photos that are incredible. And even a, uh, I think there's a webcam out there, isn't there? Yes. Um, it, it looks like a, a tough environment to say the very least. Yeah, Fred could give you some stories of how tough it is. Fred, do you care to share anything in particular? Well, all I would say is that it is the absolute uh, most desolate, as, as Carl was saying, most desolate area you can find in North America. I mean, when you're 40-odd 40, 40 odd miles offshore uh, you, in an environment that uh, you can easily have 30-foot-plus waves, 110-mile-an-hour winds, uh, and, of course, ice in the winter that is incredibly thick and hard. Uh, back, if uh, I remember correctly, 1913 storm on the Great Lakes, it took a crew of a dozen men to go out to the lighthouse to chop away a 12-foot barrier of ice that had sealed off the entire lower levels of the light just to be able to remove the four keepers for the fall, get them off the lakes and close the light down. But imagine that, 12-foot of ice, 12 men, about a week and a half to get through it just to be able to get them out. Jeez, can't imagine. There was one spring in, uh, forgot the year, but it was, it was July 15th before the light was able to be lit because they couldn't get to it. Uh, you Incredible. could begin all the way into July. Well, you just couldn't fight your way through the ice. They didn't have big icebreakers on the lakes back then, and you couldn't fight your way through it. You could walk over, you could drag a boat behind you for safety, but that makes it very difficult to, to open that light up for the spring, especially again, it's the middle of July. <laughs> so that's uh, that's problems of being on the big lake. Uh, I mentioned the size of some of the, the waves that would strike this thing. And again, it's a 110 foot hall, a, a tall. Uh, the bottom level is I think 12 foot thick walls, uh, immensely strong. But the shake that the light would be introduced to by the power of the waves literally knocked cans off of the shelves in the galley. That's the power of this thing hitting. Wow. So the stories out there are legend. Yeah. I think it was in our episode, I think it was a quote that was the loneliest place uh, in North America, something like that. Something like that. You know, some of the guys liked it. Uh, some of the old original keepers, civilian keepers, uh, one fellow spent 99 consecutive days at the light. Uh, he could have gone ashore anytime. I mean, his leave was way overdue. He didn't want to leave. He spent 99 consecutive days. Another fellow got off the boat for his initial assignment, climbed up to the with a little ladder to the caisson deck, looked around and said, I'm out of here. <laughs> At that point, the boat had already left. So he had to spend the eight days before he could get off there, his shift. It was rumored in the 1950s that the Coast Guard had to remove one of their crewmen in a straitjacket uh, because he had literally gone over the edge at Standards Rock. Wild. And I think there was one instance that we discussed in our episode about uh, the fog whistle, steam whistle, that was housed inside the tower. At, at one point, I think it had, um, I'm an engineer, so it had it failed to open, and so it was uh, continuously blowing uh, 
for the gentlemen that were there. I believe that was that that uh, lighthouse. So one more uh, one more insult, but one more pretty wild. <laughs> so it's 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 very interesting, um, and I'm, I'm glad there's restoration in place and in plan. So you mentioned, uh, was it Carl? Is it two million dollars? And do you know a, a timeline for the actions for uh, for what needs to get done out there? Well, um, <clears throat> that is a, there's a state approved uh, restoration plan, and that is the okay. estimate from the consulting firm we were working with. Um, everything takes time out there. As Fred can tell you how long it took to build it, but uh, so I. I would say we're going to need, you know, a couple of years even to just get enough to get started. Um, we continue to do small little repairs and, and basic maintenance out there. We were out there in July repairing a window. And last, was it last winter? Uh, the Coast Guard uh, took a helicopter out to help repair a window <laughs> up in the upper levels near the beacon. Um so little things are continuing to happen, but the the overall uh, restoration uh, is years down the road, in my estimate. <clears throat> and part of that cost is uh, we would like to uh, create a, kind of a state-of-the-art research station there where these scientists could stay overnight if they wanted to, and it wouldn't be as scary as it is today. Uh, so that that doesn't have to happen. The first priority are you know the structural and historic uh, renovation work. But then, if we have enough funding, we're going to start this process of uh, having a you know a, a sleeping level, a, 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 a kit, you know what do they call it a galley uh, level, and uh, it would be a composting toilet and so forth, things like that. Well, that sounds like an adventure. That sounds like a good recruiting tool to get folks out there. <laughs> yeah, I might stay overnight if, if if it was if that was completed. Absolutely, absolutely. The old bed and breakfast. Just bring your own bed. Bring your own breakfast. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. There's a there's a lot of uh, lighthouses that I've read about where conservative and and research for for weather data and other eco data has been tied in with modern day efforts. I know one of them that I was interested in was Triangle Island Lighthouse, which is off the coast of Vancouver Island. Mm -hmm. uh, and that's that's an episode that I actually got to, to research and talk about with Emily, but the <clears throat> I think the island is technically inaccessible these days, but it was the, the main action still going on there is research for uh, graduate students and uh, mostly the Canadian government, but really, really interesting action going on, especially after that lighthouse is, is gone. I don't know if you two are, you probably are familiar, but to me, it was a, a learning point. No, I'm not. Fred might be. Well, only in passing. Uh, that's not an area that I have uh, really have had recent great interest in. And of course, the lighthouse book of uh, magic recipes was done about 10 years ago now. So I've you know, you tend to do a book and you do a memory dump and then you move on to the next one. Yeah. You know, what Carl is suggesting is such a unique opportunity because here you can take this particular lighthouse, Standards Rock Light, that's so far distant from shore and has played such a major role in the shipping history of the Great Lakes and be able to convert it into now cutting edge, a, a, a institutional base literally for cutting edge climate research. To be able to take, again, something built over a century ago and reconfigure it now to still be a useful navigational tool of a different sort, a way to navigate your, through, navigate your way through climate change and, and global warming, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, it's just, just remarkable. Um, yeah. Can, it, I, can I quote you on that, Fred? You can quote it in gold plate, but uh, I think making that linkage from the historic past into the cutting edge future is really important for people to understand the value of being able to do this project. Yeah, I, I agree with you, Fred. And, you know, uh, Vince, uh, when I mentioned the Canadian government, that's the uh, Environment Canada, and our equivalent is the 
NOAA, the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration. So they're kind of the high level, for each government, their highest level scientific research agency. And they both uh, see the value in standard rock because it is so remote um, and because of um, a number of other factors that it's, it's just uh, unparalleled for climate research. And um, so it's exciting to be part of that, you know, and we, uh, we have some equipment out there too, but uh, they're doing the, the high level research and, and it's just uh, been great to be part of that. And believe it or not, some of that data is, well, it's used on a regular basis in local weather forecasting. The National Weather Service uses that data for especially uh, lake effect snow forecasts, but evaporation rates and other things like that. And so people are benefiting from Standard Rock and they don't even know it. They're more accurate weather forecasts. And, and uh, the other thing it's used for is we're now working with a lot of different partners on climate adaptation plans and climate resiliency plans. How do you plan you know, for communities to become better adapted as, as climate changes. And that's, we use some of that data from standard and, and other places. So it, it's, uh, it, it's, Fred's right. It's, it's the best of the past and the, and the present and, and the future really all in one. Yeah. There's a, a lot of value there. That's incredible. It's interesting. Uh, not only that its location is so remote, I'm assuming you really do need a lighthouse out there as far as even if you wanted just a data collection point, you know, they have buoys and different systems, but um, being able to to take that and combine, it's so well spoken by Fred, but combine the historical significance and importance to modern day work to future value, especially with, with I'm again, I'm an engineer with, with trending data and collecting data over time. It's really incredible work. Yeah. And, you know, we have uh, a three different uh, buoys that we deploy closer to, to the mainland here, but for monitoring purposes, and actually those are funded through NOAA, but our nonprofit owns them, but it's nothing like the, the amount of research and monitoring equipment that you can put on that lighthouse. And uh, so, and and the fact that, uh, you know, we have to retrieve these buoys every fall <laughs> or they'll be demolished. Uh, we just did that in the last couple of weeks um, where the lighthouse can stay there year round and provide data. So all these benefits. And I know you did some, you already did some research on standard, but Fred can give you a little more on the history of the reef out there and how it was discovered. because. All of a sudden, out in the middle of one of the the deepest of the Great Lakes, there's this very very shallow reef. Well, I, I certainly can do that. I, I did want to mention, though, having gone back and forth to, uh, to to the rock any number of times, there is a significant difference in the weather and the wind velocity and wind speed and wind direction too versus what you have at lake level and what you may have 110 foot high. So the data you're pulling down from a buoy is going to be significantly different often than what you're actually getting from 110 foot on top of the lighthouse. And for cool. a small, small boat perspective going out there, and it's a very popular fishing place, that's kind of important. Uh, so, you know, we're very happy to, to see that data being provided. You know, a, a way to think about this is that the reef itself is about a three quarters of a mile or so across. But there's only one part of it that projects above water, and that's maybe 15 foot high, about 20 foot wide or so. And back in 1836, when the first vessel was was kind of exploring Lake Superior uh, with Captain Benjamin, no, excuse me, Charles Stannard, uh, they discovered this. And when they saw it from a distance, it looked like an overturned boat, the hull of an overturned boat. And only when they got close enough did they realize that, holy crow, we are sailing into a rock reef. And that is part of the reef projecting above the water. So they got kind of a, 
a, a real gulp there when they realized what they potentially were on in terms of navigation hazard, because there's other places up there that come up to 12 feet, other places go up to two feet, some go down to 40 feet, a very rough surface to it. But the water around it is hundreds of feet deep. So it's a very strange uh, geological feature from the bottom of the lake. And you realize how big Lake Superior is when you understand that if you were to drain it, refilling it would take one Lake Michigan, one Lake Huron, uh, one Lake Ontario, and three Lake Erie's. That's the volume of water in the lake. So it was once they discovered it that they also realized that it was just off the shipping lane from Whitefish Point, which would be the locks of Sault Ste. Marie, to Duluth Superior, which was the major port on Lake Superior. So with the ore traffic developing and the shipping traffic developing on the lake, this became one terrific navigation hazard. And it took the lighthouse service probably 20 years before they figured out that yes, we can put a light on it and go through the engineering studies. And really even today, uh, theoretically it is recognized as one of the 10 greatest engineering feats ever in the United States. The construction of this lighthouse so distant from shore in such a way, in such a manner, to be able to withstand the storms of Lake Superior. On the uh, on the construction itself, I find that really interesting. I think uh, I don't know how to word it, but I think there was something to do with a wood frame and then a concrete crib that was built upon the top of the projecting rock. Is do do you know more information on that? That part you of know, the construction? Yeah, what they had to do, they had to figure out a way to anchor the base of the lighthouse to the rock. And the way they chose to do that was to build a very heavy concrete caisson that would be two stories high and would be mostly rubble and uh, uh, concrete. But they had to have a methodology of holding the concrete together, framing it, obviously, so you could make the pour, but also a very carefully... Um, constructing the edges of that wooden framework such that they precisely fit against the variations of the rock of the rooftop. So you had perfect water seals. Once you put it on, you weren't getting flooding of water coming in through the bottom. Mm. So that's what they built ashore with extraordinarily detailed surveying in that water to get the proper depth and the proper angles at each one of these little cut points. Then they brought it out to the reef on a kind of beautiful calm day and very carefully sunk it and fit it right to the rock as they had so custom made it. And once that was done, they were able to get some rubble in it to hold it in place. Rubble came from a local island. And then they would make the concrete pour and over time build that up to be this, uh, this tooth, if you will, that somebody had built and anchored into your jawbone. And once that was done and leveled, then you could build a tower. Especially for the time. It's just, essentially, it's like a 3D printed custom fit, uh, a hip, if you will. <laughs> especially but, uh, for the time. And again, one of the top 10 engineering feats in the country was doing that. And how long that did foundation. It, Go ahead. How long did it take, Fred? To build the light five years. And probably 40% of the time they estimate was wasted. Uh, either on weather or having to rebuild damage done during the winter. Wow. That's so interesting. The uh, the lighthouse, well, Standard Rock Light is on the National Registry for Historic Places. Yes. Um, is that, what what impact did that have when coming to acquire Standard Rock? Is that uh, a hoop to jump through or is that kind of just a, an additional support piece for your work out there? Oh, it's definitely additional support. It helps with grant proposals. And, uh, you know, a lot of people are interested uh, partly because of that. So it's been a definitely a good thing. If, and if, by the way, if, uh, if you ever want to get out there, let me know. Uh, we'll try to coordinate something. You know, I do. <laughs> I, uh, I, I drafted an email I didn't send back when we first got in contact about, man, we got to come up there. How soon can we come up? Uh, it was going to be it was going to be a rushed thing, but I think uh, Emily and I are interested for sure. We've talked about it, and um, we've talked about we, we were able to go to the Outer Banks kind of on super tourist mode uh, in September. It was a beautiful trip. Met lots of very nice people. Saw some awesome lighthouses. 
Um, and that was our first exposure to traveling with the intent of, of visiting flight stations. So I think it will be something that we will return to in, in Standard Rock and be, be very interesting. I've also never been up in that area of the country, to be honest with you. Um, closest I've been, I'm, I'm from Kansas. I've traveled here and there, but closest I've been would probably be uh, Chicago. Yeah, not not close. So, yeah, so well, it would be a, it'd be great. You'll uh, there's no comparison. Lake Superior is is uh, lives up to its name. Um, by the way, if you do visit, those are usually working visits. So uh, to Standard Rock, where some uh, maintenance or something. Oh yeah, there's no free tickets, no that's free right. rides. That's right. <laughs> That's a pleasure. Uh, we'll, we'll, we'll talk about it soon, I'm sure. Um, I have a, a note here from Emily. The evaluation of the conditions at Standard were completed in 2017. Uh, it's been another five or six years. Do you expect the restoration will take longer or require more funding once you get out there? I think we've already kind of discovered your estimate we've talked about, but it is kind of an interesting question. Is is it a moving target as far as deterioration goes? Well, or is it kind of a... No, that's a good question. But I would say, uh, you know, it, it's it been there. Well, do my math for me, Fred. 140-some <laughs> years. Um, and it's not deteriorating quickly. We're keeping up with minor repairs. I, but it's a good question because... And what's happened in the last five years is material costs and gas costs and everything, transportation has all yeah. gone up. I, I'd say that would be the main factor, um, inflation. Yep. I would, I would agree just from, I used to work at a construction company as a project manager and through COVID, I'd have to keep introducing higher and higher prices to the customer without, without higher and higher profits. Um, right. Do you have, are these specialty contractors that would do the repairs and work? Or is this, uh, I guess I've always asked that question about lighthouse construction. Are there specialists who work in, in that area or is it uh, custom projects for, for local guys? It's, it's more uh, the specialists and working with uh, architecture firms that are, specialists as well so i mean there's oversight for the contractors but the contractors have to be the best of the best yeah so that's the short answer i believe it i yeah. believe it so you carl you live in marquette as well yep what uh what's marquette like what is what is the lighthouse in uh, the lake have to do with the culture in marquette i think i know the answer but Having never visited, I'd like to hear your guys' take. Well, again, you know, we have a Great Lakes historian on the podcast, but I'll let I'll I'll hand it to Fred. But I also want you to know that we have another lighthouse here on land in Marquette, and now I'll hand it to Fred. Well, thanks, Carl. Uh, yeah. The lighthouse that Carl's talking about is the Marquette Harbor Light, uh, which is an 1866 construction. And uh, literally is, I would argue, one of the most important lights on Lake Superior, simply because of the iron ore that was in and out of Marquette Harbor all the time. Uh, it's not well known that uh, Marquette, for example, provided over 60% of the iron for the Union armies. And that light and its predecessor were critical in making sure that those cargoes arrived safely. But Marquette is a city of about 21,000 people, uh, founded 1849 for the mining industry. Uh, the iron mines were located about 20 miles further into the county. And of course, the rail would bring it to the to Marquette port of, and then it would be shipped from here to the world. And that put Marquette squarely in the middle of the Industrial Revolution. Uh, today, the city is the home of a regional medical center, uh, a small state university, Northern Michigan University, and uh, really has converted itself into a, uh, a very much of a 21st century community. A uh, lot of workers in town working remotely, being anywhere in the world, a lot of entrepreneurs, uh, incredibly in, uh, wrapped into bicycling and bicycle trails, so mountain biking number two in the country, according to Bike Magazine. 
uh, heavy snowfall, obviously, which means a lot of winter sports. And surfing, too. We're the, we're the only city I know of where you can surf on the lake in November and very likely also go skiing on Marquette Mountain the same day. Uh, so it is everything for anybody there. But it's uh, it, the city has received a number of, uh, of recognitions through the last uh, decade or so about being number one for this, that, or the other thing. But a, a very pro uh, progressive and forward moving city, I think would be a fair way to say it. And Carl might agree with me on that. I do. I agree with him a hundred percent. And I'm looking out my window at Lake Superior. I'm inside a Presque Isle park, a beautiful park in the city. And one of the hot spots for surfing is right outside my window, but the surf is, is not up. So there aren't, there's nobody out there right now, <laughs> but uh, yeah, you should come visit sometime. I'd love to. It sounds great. It's interesting to be, there, there's not a lot of areas that are both the the source of a natural resource, iron ore, for example, and also a transportation hub. A lot of them are one of the two. I've lived in, uh, in Kansas my whole life, and uh, Kansas City was one of the transportation hubs for cattle and many other things. But it's interesting that to, to have a combination, the crossover of, of that, especially a lot of the natural beauty, it sounds like that's up there in your inland ocean. That's all, uh, that's all unique. We don't have any of that down here. So we are extraordinarily protective of the environment as a, as a city, as a group, as, as an area, as a locale, uh, the environment to us, we understand the value of it and you work very hard to maintain it and to keep it safe. Yeah. The best time of year I take it is probably August, September, February, <laughs> February. February, because we will run the UP 200 dog sled race, and that will start in downtown Marquette. The lights will be out. It'll be like Mardi Gras on ice. And then every every three minutes, a new dog team kicks off. You hear the tinkle of the bells. You hear the pad of the feet. You have the, it's, it's nighttime. All the sparkling lights are around down the city. It's almost magical. It's like watching a Disney parade uh, with a heavy coat on. But they yeah. will go. They will go 120 miles down lake to a small town called uh, Grand Marais. That will be the turnaround point. They'll bed down. They'll do all the vet checks. They'll turn them around in the morning and kick them back to the city. And it is incredible. It is a qualifying race for the Iditarod. So you'll have some of the best teams in the country there. Yeah, and it's wow. something you don't see in Kansas. That's true. No. <laughs> no. If you're seeing it, you you got to let me know what you're taking. Yeah, right? you're in deep trouble. <laughs> uh, well it's one of those things you got to ask the local that's uh that's really interesting i assume in february it wouldn't be uh too easy to go work out on standard rock yeah long hike <laughs> yeah <laughs> unless the coast guard takes you by helicopter um yeah. but august is a good month if you're brave enough to swim in lake superior because that's about the only time it is warm enough it's even then it's icy cold yeah yeah so massive body of water holds that temperature right it's the largest lake on the planet by surface area and i do know it's over 1300 feet deep the deepest spot incredible well as uh as we keep our work going here we've been producing for about six months now uh we just sat down yesterday and talked about the next six months what we're going to be working on i wanted to ask you both uh what do you recommend for uh, the next lighthouse to talk about on the Great Lakes? Should we talk about uh, Marquette Harbor Light? We might be able to do that one in person, I guess. I'd second that. Well, that would be a good one. Um, again, many stories connected, many much very colorful history. I think you'd find it a, a, a worthwhile uh, talk, worthwhile show. Isn't it haunted, Fred? It is indeed. Uh, we've had numerous paranormal groups in that are having a field day uh, with, uh, with the spirits, and they are different, apparently, than other spirits. But I, I think you would enjoy talking with some of them if you want to take a different vent. I can put you in touch with the, the paranormal teams that uh, have, have been in there. Yeah. Well, we just released an episode. Uh, Emily did most of the research. So I was along, along for the ride to say, wow. 
but we just released an episode before uh, Halloween on some haunted lighthouses, but Marquette was not involved. So let's we'll keep uh, you in mind. We've got your contact now. Yeah. One of the interesting things that they've done, the, the paranormal team is acting as a fundraiser for the university or rather for the, the museum. They, uh, they will sell a spot on the investigation. In other words, they will take five people with them that are non-investigators that have not been involved in the project. And for, I don't know, 50 bucks a piece or something, you will spend that investigation period with the team actually doing all of the work. So you'll get to see how the detection devices are set up, how all of the protocols are followed. And then if you find something, you are right there experiencing it with everybody else. So it's a, it's a unique program I've never seen being done anywhere, perhaps it is. Were you talking about the Maritime Museum, Fred? The Maritime Museum. Yeah. The, the lighthouse is operated by the Maritime Museum in Marquette. It's just a subsidiary. The structure itself is owned by the city of Marquette. And that was obtained when we did a property transfer of about seven acres of old Coast Guard life-saving property to the city in exchange for a acre of land that the Coast Guard then built a new facility on. So the Maritime Museum in turn will run tours through the lighthouse and will act as, if you will, the uh, guardians, lighthouse uh, experts for the city. And then the city assumes the responsibility for the light, the maintenance and the insurance, if that makes sense. So we have a very good cooperative relationship with them. Part of that networking we talked about, huh? Part of the networking, the lens for the standards rock light is also in the museum. So okay. We have it located as close as it can be without being there. It would be kind of foolish to put it back out on the light. Nobody would ever see it, as opposed yeah. to seeing you know, seven or eight or 10,000 people a year have a chance to get, again, an appreciation of this lighthouse history. Right. And how, yeah. how tall is that lens again? Uh, well, it's a second order for now. So the lens proper would be about six feet. Uh, the uh, stand that it's on, uh, another six foot to that. So you're looking at about 12 foot as you're standing looking at it. Yeah, it's it's a beautiful lens. Uh, 12, uh, 12 bullseye for now. Yeah. Man, I'm assuming it's not still floating on a bed of mercury these days. <laughs> no, this one never was. Uh, that was a very, oh, no? No, that was a very rare thing for lighthouse lenses to be on mercury. Oh, okay. Uh, it's become legendary that all the big ones are all on mercury, but like a lot of legends, they're not necessarily true. Uh, this one was on rollers, and you can still hand roll it around. That's interesting. Well, you guys, you've put uh, you've put Marquette on my map. I don't know if I'm be able to to get out of this one. I think we'll be coming up there. Just got to find out when. Now, if I can convince them to do it, somebody you ought to talk to also is Kirk Fosberg. Uh, Kirk is a lampist. He's the one that restores the lenses and restores all of the machinery with them. Yeah. Literally, literally goes around the country doing that. So he earns his living. He's down in Texas now doing one for Padre Island, I think, or something. Uh, but remember about three or four years ago, there was a movie called The Lighthouse? Yes. Yeah. He was the technical director for the movie. And the lens oh. you see in the movie was a, le a, a lens that Kurt built for the, the, the flick. So he's That's full of this stuff. I mean, he's been around, done that. He's a, he's a great fellow to speak with, great stories. I think you would enjoy talking with him and getting a different perspective of lighthouses than just that's a lighthouse and here's when it was built. But to right. get into how you do some of these other things that make it uh, so appealing. Yeah, but we'll absolutely reach out for that. That'd be very good for us. I'll send you a contact. Thank you, Fred. We're gonna we're gonna when we post this show, we're also gonna talk about both Fred, your website with all of your published books. Is your website up? Is your website up to speed? Yeah, it, it's up. It's up to speed, mostly kind of. Uh, the speaking section usually falls apart, but uh, everything else is okay. All right, and and of course the SWP website, Carl. We talked about that. Um, I appreciate your your help with uh, my uh, reaching out to try to donate. We'll make we'll make that happen, and uh, we'll share that site as well. And I, I thank you guys so much. This has been very interesting for me. Um, I feel 
feel in very big shoes and there's a, a lot to learn and a lot of very interesting stuff. So it's, it's oh. been an honor and I thank you so much. The, the honor is certainly mine and thank you for, for having me, uh, having me join you. Yeah. Thanks Vince. And say hi to Emily. I will. I will. We'll loop her in here. Thank you guys. Bye. So yeah, that was our two gentlemen. That was our, uh, <laughs> that was our phone call we recorded. I uh, hope the quality was good for you guys. It's a first time for us to do something like that. Yeah, over um, Zoom is hard too. Yeah, and they got me excited. It's been a couple of days since this call, and I want to go up there. I, I really oh, yeah. want to go to Marquette. We need to make plans to yeah. do that. I'd like to visit with them if possible, see um, what was the lighthouse I looked up? Marquette Harbor yeah. Lighthouse is very pretty. Very and pretty. I love red lighthouses. I think they're so so yeah. so nice to look at. Never hurts. So yeah, really might consider a trip up there. Um, and yeah, I, I had a great time. Also wanted to note that if you donate to the restoration project and just send me a, you know, a screenshot of your receipt or confirmation that you donated to the standard rock lighthouse restoration project mm -hmm. from SWP, then I will, I will send you a sticker hand drawn by me of standard rock lighthouse, um, just as a thank you. And so uh, you can send it to our email at thelighthouselowdown at gmail.com with your address. And I'll send you a sticker. It's cool. Custom hand drawn by our own artist. Yes. Be cool and donate. It's really cool. I, I, I donated and uh, there's a thank you screen that comes up on the SWP site. I don't know about the uh, GoFundMe, but okay. so that Great. would probably be a good option. Yeah. And don't donate like one cent and then try and get a sticker. <laughs> That's that's shady. We got millions to raise here, folks. <laughs> I guess that's all we have to say on that. Yeah. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you guys next time on the Lighthouse. Lighthouse.